your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Father, thank you for the firm foundation that we have that first and foremost uh, is Christ Jesus, the cornerstone built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And because of that, we have the written word before us that uh, we need to glean from and learn from. And we ask that you give us understanding and help us just continue to uh, think through all that's taking place uh, in the book of Judges, Father, and how that you work among your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 6, I'll read from verses 1 through verse 27. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they'd come up with their livestock and their tents. They'd come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Eberzite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please, do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present 
and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Orphrah, which belongs to the Aborazites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. We'll stop there. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, as a kid, I loved uh, watching this old show. If you're my age, you probably know what it is, Lost in Space. And um, the, um, if you look it up on YouTube, since I mentioned it, you have to look for 1965 to 1968. Those of you who have never heard of Lost in Space, I'll tell you that when you're my age watching it, it was the coolest thing, and the graphics were absolutely phenomenal. It was as high-tech as it comes. If you Googled it today and looked at it, you'd think it's the cheesiest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Um, but one thing that happened as I began to watch it was every so often at the most dramatic moment, and I'd be on the edge of my seat, the last frame of the TV show used to say, to be continued. And I remember being so angry that I had to wait a whole week to watch the next episode. Now, most of you anymore don't know what that means because you, lie, you, you stream stuff and you just wait three seconds and the next one comes on. So nobody has to wait anymore for the next show. But in those days, to wait a week to find out if Will or, or the robot got out of the jam there and it was, it was just awful. Well, um, I'm saying all that to say this is a sermon that's going to be to be continued. So if you want to find out what happens after... Um, the, the idols torn down in um, Gideon's father's house, that you have to come back next week. Attendance is mandatory because this is a two-part sermon. Today is only part one. Now, we know from the last verse in chapter five that the land had rest for 40 years. And as in times past, the rest in the land did not create any moral or spiritual change in the nation of Israel. They just continue to go down this trajectory of sin. 
even though God has been faithful to them, even though God has delivered them time after time after time. And so we come to chapter 6, verse 1, with what we've seen a number of times. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And our theme, nearly every sermon, is that God sees, God sells, and then the rest of the sermon is about God saves. Now, though this is only seven years of oppression, the writer of the book of Judges just pauses and gives us a glimpse of really how horrible the times were. It, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that the nation was probably on the verge of starvation. And we said last week that the nation was so oppressed uh, by Jabin, Jabin the Canaanite and by Sisera, his commanding army, that they were so oppressed that they could no longer live in the villages. They had to live in the cities because out in the villages uh, they weren't safe. They couldn't be in isolated places. Well, here, not even the cities are safe because verse 2 tells us, at, in the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So the villages aren't safe anymore. Uh, the cities aren't safe anymore. So they fled to the mountains, and now they're living in caves, and they've built strongholds. Now, we would say then that these were somewhat safe, but it didn't keep their flocks or their produce safe because verse 3 tells us that everything that the Israelites planted, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come and devour the produce of the land, including all their sheep, all their oxen, and their donkeys. Now, those of you who farm and those of you who garden, you wonder how you'd feel if somebody with bigger guns than you, than you have uh, right when you're ready to harvest, would come in and strip all your fields and, and, and take away all your produce and take away all your flocks and all of your herds and all of your animals just when you're ready to butcher them. And can you imagine the text that states they were like locusts? They had camels that couldn't be numbered. They devoured everything inside, and, and we have to feel the weight of this. We know that if you have a bad harvest, the next year is difficult. But when someone comes and takes everything that you're about to harvest, uh, you not only have no food in the immediate, but you can't make it through fall. You can't make it through winter. You can't make it through spring. And you certainly can't make it to next planting season. So he's telling us that they're absolutely helpless and everything again looks hopeless. That's what verse 6 means when they were brought very low. Now, as a big picture side note, we're clearly seeing this this trajectory that things are getting worse and worse and worse in the nation of Israel. We're such a far cry from chapter 1 when they originally were actually having some victory as they went into the land. That's long gone now. They're experiencing the very things that God said would happen to him, them. God's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his word. And part of his covenant faithfulness is bringing the difficulty and bringing the, the, the nations upon them so that they will repent and return to him, but that just hasn't happened yet. So as they have in the past, they cry out to the Lord. But instead of the other times we've looked at judges, of providing an immediate deliverer here, God provides a prophet to proclaim the word of God. 
Now, the unnamed prophet doesn't really say anything new. Uh, Speaking for God, he reminds the people that God led them. God brought them out. God delivered them. God drove out the nations and God gave them the land. And God told them they did not have to fear the gods of the Amorites. However, the nation did not listen to the voice of God. And what's really striking here, I think, is that in this proclamation, uh, the prophet doesn't finish. In most cases, when, in most passages, when the prophet speaks, after the accusation, there's usually a big therefore. You know, thus saith the Lord, if you repent, I will deliver. If you do not repent, I will destroy, etc. But the prophet doesn't say anything about that. Instead, with no apparent change, no movement toward God, no affirmation of any love for God, where seemingly the word of God falls on deaf ears and it falls to blind eyes and dead hearts, he still sends a deliverer, demonstrating again, as he has throughout the book, demonstrating God's patience, his long-suffering, his being slow to anger, and his genuine pity for these wayward people. He's giving grace after grace and mercy after mercy to men and women who are, who are blatantly undeserving, who've rejected him, who have gone after other gods, and who clearly deserve his wrath. It sounds like modern man, doesn't it? It sounds like us. It just has an Ephesians 2 ring to it, that you were dead in your trespasses and sin and by nature children of wrath but God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace are you saved now his deliverance of the nation is not salvific they are not responding to his grace but the very nature of his mercy is pointing us, as we read it, to to a greater deliverance. It's pointing us to a permanent deliverance. It's pointing us to an eternal deliverance that we have with Christ, who's called us out of our wayward, out of our rebellious condition, when we had deaf ears, and we had blind eyes, and we had dead hearts. And in that condition, when we were his enemies, he didn't bring his wrath, He didn't kill us. He could have. Instead, he made peace with us through the cross. He made peace with us through the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see a precursor to that as we look at the life of Gideon today. Gideon is a deliverer that God raises up to rescue his people. The narrative about Gideon actually is the longest one in the book of Judges. It's even longer than the story of Samson. But there's no better story from beginning to end that shows how God's kind and how he's gracious and his patient dealings with his servants' fears, with his apprehensions, with his weakness, and the reasons why he's saying that I'm not the one to deliver. As in all the narratives we've seen so far, the easiest way to walk through this is just we'll walk through it together and we'll make application as we go. It begins in a really interesting way because after the prophet speaks, 
the angel of the Lord, who we know as God himself or pre-incarnate Christ, he shows up under a tree that belongs to Gideon's father, Joash. Now, the introduction of his dad, Joash, is important to remember, and Gideon's family ties are a big part of the narrative. Now, we know it's God under the tree because verse 16, the text says, the Lord said to him, and the reference to the one speaking is a reference back to the angel of the Lord. So angel of the Lord and Lord go hand in hand. It's the same person. It's what we call a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of God. He manifests himself in human form. And we know that, by the way, Gideon speaks to him in verse 13. He says, please, sir. Some translations say Lord. It's just a polite way of talking to a stranger. So at the present, Gideon does not know this stranger as God. He just sees him as a person who shows up. Notice what Gideon is doing in verse 11. Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, the winepress there was very large, and you were secluded when you were in it. Odd place uh, to beat out wheat, uh, unless, of course, you're afraid the Midianites are going to come and steal your grain. Uh, we know that they'll take any produce that they have. So he beats it in the wine press instead of in the open, and he clearly is afraid of the Midianites. It's under these horrible conditions that the angel of the Lord, or God himself, appears to Gideon, and he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, he's the only one in the wine press, but he had to be looking around for someone else. He didn't look like much of a man of valor as he's afraid of the Midianites uh, threshing wheat inside a wine press. And God's statement prompts a series of questions that Gideon immediately asks in verse 13. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, I find it interesting that God doesn't answer any of his questions. And he doesn't rebuke him for asking them. I don't know who the person was, however many centuries or years ago, that, that made the statement that propagates the idea that it's wrong for a Christian to ask God questions. We need to take that person out back and just give him a good horse whipping. The person has not been helpful. He has not read his Bible, and he's completely wrong. All through the Psalms, the broken and the confused and the destitute ask God questions. They say, why? How long? Where are you? I mean, Jesus, on the height of his anguish on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your questions for God are never a problem. You're already thinking them anyway, so you might as well verbalize them. And of course, the answer to why God has forsaken them was already stated by the prophet. They had not obeyed the voice of the Lord, and God forsaking them was as much a part of his covenant keeping as it was to grant them blessing when they obeyed. 
So instead of answering this question, God answers by calling him to lead the nation in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Now, if Gideon was wondering about the first statement that God made about being a man of valor, uh, he's really scratching his head with this one. Because he asks, how can I save Israel? He couldn't lead Israel. He couldn't save Israel. And he gives the reason. His family is the weakest in Manasseh. And he personally is the weakest in his father's house. Now, this is not a false humility. In this culture, there was a hierarchy in society and a hierarchy in the family. Remember when Samuel wanted to have Jesse's and all of his sons gather at the dinner, and he wanted all of his sons there because God was going to choose the next king of Israel from one of his sons. Remember, they didn't even invite David to the dinner because David was the youngest. They left him out in the field all by himself because there's no possible way that the youngest would bypass all of his older brothers and have the position of prominence. It just would not have been done. David was the lowest in the pecking order. And what does God do? He takes the ruddy shepherd boy. He takes the youngest. He takes the one who no one considered. And he puts him on his throne. And it's similar here to Gideon. His societal structure alone would prevent him from leading. It's just completely out of the question. So when he asked the question, how can I save Israel? He's just asking, how can I do the impossible? And when he asked the question, God gives him five of the most encouraging words, I think, in Scripture. The question of how he can save Israel is answered in these words. I will be with you. What is the one from the smallest tribe? What is the one from the least of his family need more than anything else? He needs God. He needs God's presence. He needs his protection. He needs his promises. He needs his power. He needs God to be with him. If you ever just took that phrase and had a concordance and walked through the Old Testament in particular and part of the New, you'd find these five words are a tremendous encouragement to so many saints. In, in Genesis 26.3, when God spoke to Isaac to keep him from running to Egypt during a famine, he needed him to stay put. And he said to, to Isaac, he said, I will be with you. When Jacob was concerned in Genesis 31 about the fact that his father-in-law Laban was treating him so poorly and was worried about his family and his, and his father-in-law coming after him, God said to him, Jacob, I will be with you. Exodus 3, Moses the burning bush, as he's expressing why he shouldn't lead the nation of Israel, God comes back with the very same five words. Moses, I will be be with you. Then when the mantle of leadership is passed down from Moses down to Joshua, and he's going to take over for Moses and lead the nation of Israel after such a great leader that Moses was as God worked in and through him, Joshua needed those same words. And God told Joshua, I will be with you. 
And then we have Jesus in Matthew 28, 20, talking to you and I as Christian believers. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It is true, beloved, that if God is for us or with us, who can be against us? And surely if you're a believing Christian, you are in Christ and Christ is in you and he is with you. If you forget anything that I say today, don't forget that. That the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who, 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 who put the planets in place, who put the sun just far enough away to heat the earth so that we can have all the seasons and we can live on this planet, who the psalmist says opens his hands. He opens his hands and he satisfies the desires of every living thing. It's that God who is with you. These five words are the hinge the entire chapter turns on, and I hope this is the hinge that your life turns on. Do you know God in this way? Do you know that he's with you? Now, now, now in most of the narratives we've seen so far in Judges, it's right here we expect, we expect the judge or the deliverer to, to, to go right now. I mean, it's been expressed now. Now he's going to go, rally the troops. But, but Gideon, he needs some assurance. We see that in verse 17. And he said to him, if now I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Now, many of the commentators just really castigate Gideon here. I mean, didn't God already give him assurance? In verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, the Lord is with you. Verse 14, the Lord is the one who sent him. We just saw in verse 16 that I will be with you. I mean, I, I mean come on. Shouldn't that be enough? I mean, wh wh why does he need a sign? I think those who beat Gideon up here, they just don't understand how gracious and how kind and how patient God is with his servants. I, I think sometimes that they believe that to be faithful, you have to be strong and never discouraged, and never question, and never doubt, and, and never go through what is commonly called the dark night of the soul. And sometimes I think people use the Apostle Paul as a guy who never needed encouragement, who never needed assurances, and always lived on the sunny side of life. And it's just not true. Uh, turn to Acts 23 just for a minute. Acts 23. Starting in Acts 21, Paul is getting himself in trouble for simply preaching the gospel. And by the time you get to Acts 23, he's in prison. Uh, he's gone through more than one riot. He's gone through a few mobs. Uh, and uh, he was going to be torn apart by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He's going to be ripped in two. And the centurion comes in and grabs him, doesn't even know exactly what's going on. And then he brings him back to the barracks. And Paul is all by himself in Acts 23, verse 11. Verse 11 states, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Why, why, why would the Lord stand by him? 
Why would the Lord tell him to take courage? After all he went through, he needed some support. He needed some help. After all he went through, he had no courage. You don't tell someone to take courage unless they don't have any courage. So Paul needed assurance. And Jesus graciously gives it to him. Back in Judges 6, I think Gideon's life, at this moment in time, the entire nation is worshiping Baal. We'll find out soon that his father was the owner of the physical idols of Baal and Asherah that the nation worshipped. He's called out of a wine press that he was threshing wheat inside because of the locusts of armies that would come up and take away everything. And then today, an angel comes to him and tells him that he's going to lead the nation against the Midianites. <laughs> I mean, who can blame him for needing a little assurance, right? Well, some commentaries do. And I think some insensitive Christians do. But God certainly doesn't because he grants Gideon's request. Now, don't forget the promise. The promise is, I will be with you. And the first way God fulfills that promise is by agreeing to stay until Gideon brings out his present, which, which is the food he's about to prepare. Then in verse 18, God states to him, he says, I will stay until you return. Now, this is God manifest in the flesh speaking. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And, he, and, and he's just not in a rush. I mean, in this century, this is not fast food. I mean, you, 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 those of you who, uh, who know about butchering animals, I mean, how long would it take to make bread from scratch, kill a goat, skin it, and cook it, and make broth, and deliver it? I mean, a half a day? Gideon, I have time for you. Take as long as you need. Kill the goat. Make the bread. Gideon, I'm not going anywhere. Because I told you, I'll be with you. Gideon, I will show you a sign. And I'm here for you. See, this is exactly what he needed. And God met him where he was at. Do you know and understand God that way? He's kind and he's gracious. Now the sign he's looking for is going to come in the form of fire. When Gideon comes with the bread, the meat, the broth, the Lord instructs him to put all of it on a rock, pour broth over it, and according to the middle of verse 21, when he touched it with his staff, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight, and then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. I love that little line. It's pretty, it sounds like me. I always get things really late, you know. It took him, it took him until here. Ah, I, think, I, I think that was the angel of the Lord. He kind of vanished in front of me after there was a fire. Now, why didn't he know before? Well, I don't know why I didn't know before. But there's a progression here in the text from what Gideon first assumed was a stranger or a visitor talking to him, he who addresses as sir in verse 13, to now his cry out, alas, O Lord God. And it's a sign of fire that produces the understanding that he has seen God. Fire throughout scripture points to God. 
fire points to his power and his holiness and his presence. The, the Israelites were led by fire in the wilderness, by the, by the fire, fire of the presence of God. We know that fire is what completely enveloped the bush that Moses was looking at that we call the burning bush. It was, it was fire that helped him to understand that he was standing on holy ground before the Lord. Elijah's sacrifice with the prophets of Baal uh, was a fiery sacrifice. Fire points to God's power. It points to his presence. It points to his holiness. Fire also purifies and fire consecrates. Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 6 for a moment. Gideon's experience in Judges 6 was very similar to the experience that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6 as he saw the Lord. In both cases, God was calling his servants to himself into service. But in Isaiah chapter 6, I'll read from verse 1. Fire purifies and fire consecrates. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this says, Touch your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me because of his sin, and because of the people's sin, and because he had seen God. And it was the fiery coal from the altar that had cleansed and consecrated the prophet. This is what atoned for his sin. The word atone, it means to cleanse, it means to pacify, it means to forgive. It means to appease. It means to reconcile. And back in Judges 6, in the same way, this fiery demonstration of power that Gideon saw, this brought him to that same woe is me moment. At the, that moment comes when Gideon had realized that he had seen God. Because when he had thought he had seen God, he, he knew he was going to die. Verse 23 says, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Now, how about that for assurance? Gideon, who is surely on his face, trembling like every other person in Scripture who had an encounter with God, instead of being instantly killed, the Lord of the universe says, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Now, clearly, he should die. He's been an idol worshiper. He's broken God's covenant. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. But instead of giving him what he deserves, God gives him grace. He gives him unmerited favor. He gives him what he does not deserve. He gives him peace. Not peace like the absence of turmoil or the absence of chaos, 
but peace with God Almighty. He, he, he gives him reconciliation and forgiveness and atonement. And, and isn't that what he does for us? Though we deserve death and we deserve hell and we deserve wrath and we deserve, deserve judgment, he makes peace with us through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace can only be extended by the one who has power to give it. And it's clear that God has reconciled himself to Gideon and he's atoning for his sin. He gives his peace or he makes peace with his frail, unsure, weak servant who's expecting to die after he realized he's in the presence of the Almighty. And this, quite honestly, is the only way that God could fulfill his promise that I will be with you. Because he couldn't be with him if he continued to worship idols. And he couldn't be with him if he was still bound in his sin. So God initiates peace with Gideon, and Gideon responds to God's initiation. And he does this by building an altar in verse 24. And what's he called the altar? The Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. Which shows the immediate effects that having peace with God makes upon a person. Because the altar is a sign of worship. And he's been transformed from an idol worshiper to a true worshiper of the one true and living God. This clearly is the assurance he needed. This is the sign God gave him to confirm that God was the one speaking to him. And now that all that's settled, notice God's command in verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the asher that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, this is the first time in the book of Judges that to lead the nation, you have to first cleanse the nation. And what's really sad is that if you remember when the Israelites entered the land, they were to tear down the, the altars of the false gods of the Canaanites. But now Israel has become so Canaanized that Gideon has to go in and pull down the false altars and the false gods of their own people, not just the Canaanites. These false gods, we're told, belong to his dad. Now, let's start with that phrase that he was too afraid of his family and the men in town they did it, not die, did it by night. The, the same people that don't like the fact he needed assurance don't like the fact that he was afraid. They get really upset about that Gideon needed a sign of assurance, and now this is a lack of faith too. But they failed to see what the text says. He did as the Lord told him. He did as the Lord told him. God told him to pull down the altar and build one to the Lord. And Gideon obeyed the Lord. God didn't tell him what time to do it. He didn't tell him to do it at daytime. He didn't tell him to do it at nighttime. God just said, pull it down, and Gideon obeyed the Lord. Courage is not the absence of fear. 
Courage is doing the right thing even when you're fearful. Courage is doing the right thing when your stomach is so knotted you can't eat or sleep, but you're doing the right thing anyway because you're trusting God in the middle of your fears. I mean, think of Gideon and think of yourself. If these are your dad's gods, do you have to pull them down? I don't think it's a stretch to, to assume that Gideon's dad may have been the priest for Baal and for Asherah since these are in his house. The command is very clear. Tear down the altar of Baal. Cut up the Asherah God that's made out of wood. Build an altar to the Lord. Sacrifice one of your dad's bulls on the altar to the Lord with the wood you have from cutting up Asherah. Now, he couldn't have done this until the next night. Okay, because God spoke to him at night, had to get those 10 guys together to help him. I mean, 10 guys and two bulls, this is a pretty big, this is a pretty big idol. This is a pretty big idol if it takes 10 guys and pull two bulls to yank it down. And for at least a 24-hour period, he's thinking about the effects will be when he tears down these idols. And he's rightfully concerned because a little glimmer of next week, if you read forward into the text, you'll find the men of the town want to kill him for tearing down their God. So his fears are valid. But it's a question of allegiance, isn't it? He now has peace and worships the one true and living God. In fact, don't miss the pronoun in verse 26. Don't miss the pronoun. He says, but on the altar of the Lord, your God, in verse 26. Very clearly, God is, is Gideon's God, as opposed to him now worshiping Baal and Asherah. His dad, his mom, his brothers, his sisters, all the people in the town worship Baal and Asherah. And we know it's a question of allegiance, because when he builds the altar... God told him to build it on top of the stronghold. It's out in the open for the whole city to see and all the family to see. And tearing down these idols and building one to the true God of Israel is a complete and open rejection of everything that they believe in, everything that they hope in, everything they put their faith in. So yes, he's afraid, but he's also obedient. And this is where I have to say to be continued. We'll see what happens next week when they wake up the next morning. Clearly, Gideon gave up everything to follow and obey the Lord. Gideon was called to the God of peace. And the God of peace called him to call the nation back to him, beginning in his own household and town. And though he was fearful, he went in the strength that God said. I will be with you. And he was. We sing a mighty fortress is our God on purpose. And the one line in there that forces us to think of our allegiances is in the last verse. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It reminds me of the martyred missionary Jim Elliot who penned the words, he is no fool. 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And Gideon, in obedience to God, was willing to give up his goods. When he was in the wine press threshing wheat, he was working for his dad. Probably going to be unemployed by morning. Willing to give up his kindred. Surely his family will ostracize him for tearing down the idols. Willing to give up his life. Because we already know the possibility of the men in the town wanting to kill him. And yet he obeys the Lord anyway. And the reason that you can live like this, we can live like this, is because we've been brought into a new kingdom that is forever because our focus and our attention is eternal. Let me remind you again that none of this was possible apart from our merciful, gracious, and kind God promising Gideon, I will be with you. And knowing that he'll be with us gives us the grace then to respond to him and to follow him, to give up everything for him in a very real sense, to surrender all of our lives to him.